All right, let's, uh, let us pray. Father, thank you for a lovely evening. Um, thank you for the beauty of this world. Um, we do know, Father, that we live in a world that has fallen, and in this fallen world there are all kinds of troubles. But you promised uh, that we're going to have trouble in this world, uh, but you also promised us that uh, you have overcome it. So help us uh, in looking at this book to more understand what's going on around us so that we may be better prepared to be better disciples of Jesus Christ. And I ask this in his name. Amen. Um, This is a fascinating chapter. Well, they're all fascinating chapters, but I've always been amazed at how influential Sigmund Freud is in, in Western culture particularly since almost every one of his specific theories has actually been discarded, debunked, or rejected. But his general approach, the psychologizing and the sexualizing of of human being, as far as Freud was concerned, uh, human beings were defined by their sexuality. And so for him, all neuroses... Were, could be traced back to some issue with uh, not having adjusted properly to your sexuality as an infant or child or adolescent. Anyway, so here's, uh, in this chapter, here is Carl Truman's major premise. Sigmund Freud made sexual desire central to human identity, while Wilhelm Reich combined Marxism and Freudian psychology to make sexual liberation the focus of politics. They're, they're actually strange bedfellows, and if you read, read the chapter carefully, you might get an idea of, of how Reich was able to sort of jam these things together. Um, if you're really interested in it, uh, read the chapter that uh, relates to this in Truman's longer book, where he talks about a kind of an intermediary person who was after Reich, called Herbert Marcuse, who was a German philosopher who, who um, Reich prophesied the sexual revolution, Marcuse carried it out. That's about that. So let's talk about Freud. Um, man famous for saying, Some kinds of, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So he was a neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis, which isn't much done anymore, at least not the, you know, the talking cure where the, the patient is lying on a couch and just talks to the therapist and somehow they have breakthroughs and they overcome their neuroses. But let's focus on the part about sex. For Freud, sexual pleasure is foundational to human happiness. Uh, according to Truman, and he's correct about that. I, if you know anything about Freud, you know that's, that's not a controversial interpretation of it. So much so that Freud said that man should make general erotism the central point of his life. And that's not a typo. That's what Freud called it. That's a quote from Freud. Should make, basically, sexuality the central point of his life. If, if you're not seeking sex, what's the point? Freud believed that human beings are, in a sense, fundamentally defined by our sexual desires, even as infants. 
he actually believed in, in sexuality in stages. Um, this, unfortunately, is also being uh, injected into society. We saw some of that with that poor young man, Desmond Napolis, um, the sexualizing of young children, um, the now still on the fringes a little bit, but not much longer, the attempt to uh, normalize pedophilia. They've already come up with a new name for it. It's not pedophilia. It's minor attracted persons. It's just considered a, a sexual orientation like any other sexual orientation. There are no such things as sexual orientations, but I'll use the language. Um, and it's okay that we're late because this, this lesson is a little short, though I do have some harder questions. <laughs> there was a, I was just looking for a good illustration and I found out there was actually a four-issue uh, comic series called Psychoanalysis by the same publisher who published Mad Magazine, but this was serious. Doesn't it look serious? Um, follows the, the uh, lives and therapy of three individuals who, who have issues to deal with and, and this, this gentleman here helps them. Um, this is back in the 50s when psychoanalysis and Freudian psychology was still considered valid. Freud's psychoanalytic theories such as the Oedipus complex and his dream analysis have been largely discarded but his views on sex have become part of the social imaginary. Um, that's the part about Freud that I know the best was his dream analysis, so I studied that um, in, in counseling class in, in seminary. We had to do a paper, and I wasn't going to be a counselor, so I picked something a little more academic. And uh, in Freud's imagination, all dreams were wish fulfillment. Yeah, no, I've had some really odd dreams, and I'm sure you had too, that I would never wish that to happen to me or anybody else. And somehow or another, though, he'd kind of move it around so it really was a wish fulfillment. And when anything can mean anything, nothing means anything at all. So, But his views on sex have become part of the social imaginary, and so is his division of the human psyche into id, ego, and superego, which aren't valid. He, he thought these were actually ontological realities. That means they actually existed out there. They still might be useful as metaphors. Um, one of the best old science fiction movies, anybody seen Forbidden Planet? Uh, oh, great. We, we, need to have a, we need to have an old science fiction. Have you? I have it Oh, my goodness. Nick, I'm shocked. Um, it's right up there with the original and still the best um, War of the Worlds, the, the one in the 50s. Um, so we, we live in Freud's world. It's, it's, it's Freud's world. We just live in it. It's also Darwin's world, Marx's world. These, these, all these thinkers have permeated the, the Western social imaginary. This is, we, we think... We think of it without even thinking of it. Um, uh, id, ego, and superego, for example, are not really valid analysis of what a human being is. But again, it has some metaphorical value. Um, but hey, it didn't matter if you're 
proven completely wrong as long as you're influential. Like some other recent doctors I could think of, but hey, I won't go there. Um, Freud argued that morality is constructed to restrain unbridled sexuality to make human social life possible. Uh, Freud believed, I guess it was with Hobbes, that in the state of nature, men are basically brutes, but Freud added, but they're brutes looking to have as much sex as possible. So instead of a sexual free-for-all in which, you know, the biggest, strongest men win everything, uh, he, he believes that uh, morality helps restrain that and makes possible civilization. Now, the trade-off for that to like, well, you just can't have sex with anybody you want anytime you want just because you can force people to do it, is that we get civilization, the sublimation of the sexual drive, according to Freud now. Uh, that's what results in culture and art and in literature and entertainment and stuff like that. And that provides some limited uh, fulfillment of our sexual urges. Again, this is Freud talking. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in sublimation theory. I'm not sure that's actually considered valid either. Um, but that's, that's what he believed the trade-off was for allowing ourselves to have our uh, unbridled sexuality restrained because he believed, you know, that's what makes for happiness is just having as much sex as you possibly can. Uh, we, we get civilization and, and we get things like art and literature that, that aren't as good as sex, but, but they help. Um, <laughs> Sports, you mentioned sports, too. Right, sport. Well, that, that would be true, too, sports. Um, uh, now, that I do believe is a good sublimation of, of war and aggression. Um, uh, instead of having a war, get 22 sweaty men pushing and shoving each other about a you know inflated pig bladder. But anyway, <laughs> I, I jest. I, I used to love football. Well, I still like it. I just don't watch it much anymore. Um, anyway, it is uh, this tension between human desire and the needs of civilization that is the point at which sex enters the political consciousness. Because if sex is going to be part of our identity and what society will validate, well, that becomes a political question. We'll get more of that as we go along. Um, so con- contrasting Freud and Rousseau, Rousseau and the Romanticists believe that if you get in touch with your inner self through nature, or just that that the the nature we find is light and sweetness and happiness, and it will teach us morality. And uh, Freud disagreed with that. Um, he was more a Hobbesian in that, and that the uh, well, Hobbes was the guy who said. Uh, Life is uh, short, brutish, and nasty. I think that was Hobbes. Um, Freud believed that the inner voice of nature is somewhat dark um, and that it does need to be controlled. Now, he believed... um, This was part of the point, but not the main point. I think it does come up later, but Freud believed that 
morality was entirely conventional. That, that means we just make it up. It, it has no connection to anything transcendent. Freud was a materialist. There is nothing transcendent. Uh, we just create our own rules so we can have our society however we want it. But he wasn't totally... Now, he was, he was a non-practicing Jew, um, and he had a psychological explanation for religion, and that was as sort of a sacred foundation for morality so that we would accept it more, even though we only accept it just because we're accepting restraints on our sexuality. I'm not making this stuff up. I know this sounds like a cartoon in science fiction. You know, I almost feel like that when I'm trying to explain Mormonism to people. No, this is, this is not... And I'm not kidding about Mormonism. It is, it is very strange, uh, very, very strange. Um, so he believed m- morality was simply entirely conventional, that we just make it up. Um, he didn't necessarily believe in sort of the historical evolution of it. Uh, Reich did, and that's, that's him bringing in his Marxism. Marx basically said history is the... The struggle of classes, of economic classes. Reich, well, we'll get to Reich, but he said it was the struggle of classes, but it was mainly uh, oppression and oppressor had more to do with with sex than it had to do with economics. Um, And we've been fighting about sex ever since, so to speak. Uh, If we are defined to a large extent by our sexual desire or orientation, then sex must be political because rules governing sexual behavior are rules that govern what is and is not considered by society to be legitimate as an identity. I remember um, back, okay, I'm not going to do too much confessing, but let's just say I lived a dissolute and profligate youth. And back in the 70s, there was an issue about drug use among Native Americans who use peyote and mescaline in religious ceremonies. Um, and, and the idea was, well, you know, this is part of their identity, but government has, you know, a vested interest in controlling drug use. Although that's going by the wayside, too, because you can't tell anybody to do with what to do with their body anymore. And if you can't, you can't tell them not to take drugs. Um, so this idea that, that government is an arbiter and, uh, of course, sometimes a controller. There are totalitarian governments. Uh, China, um, Russia isn't really totalitarian. It's just authoritarian. <coughs> North Korea, uh, they'll, they'll tell you uh, who and what you can believe. In China, I'm, I'm getting off the track slightly, but I'll tell you where some of this stuff with sexuality may be going if it doesn't go a different direction. In China, they have what's called social credit, you know, and it's almost like money, and, and you, you, you keep an account, and if you get bad social credit, there are certain things in certain places you aren't allowed to go and you aren't allowed to do because you're a, a social problem. Um, and that's, uh, I don't know that Google specifically has anything to do with that, but that has to do with the ability now of, of social media and the ubiquity of cell phones to basically keep tabs and control everybody. I say as I speak into this cell phone in my pocket. Um, 
And I've been told, I don't know if this is a conspiracy theory anyway, but uh, the NSA and others, the CIA, can actually access your phone even when it's turned off. But I hope not. So that's a bit of an aside. But um, the fact of the matter is when government gets invested in what is and is not an acceptable identity, um, things either happen by... uh, cultural pressure, I mean, that what used to happen, or they can happen by legislation and laws, and that's where it becomes political. Um, well, for example, with homosexuality, um, up until the 70s, sodomy laws were widespread. Um, uh, but more than that, um, I mean, everybody knew what are now called gay people. Um, I don't like that term either, or transgender, but people who who, who identified as homosexual, um, well, I did, but maybe that's just the circle it's traveled in. But if you kept it hush-hush and you didn't talk about it and et cetera, et cetera, okay, well, we'll, we'll look the other way. Just don't ask, don't tell. So tolerance was was the word about that. Well, actually, we'll get to that. that. But gradually, it became, tolerance became insufficient. I think that does come up um, on a different slide. It came up in the, uh, in the chapter. Well, Wilhelm Reich, boy, he was a character. Um, Austrian doctor and also psychoanalyst. Uh, he was a, a follower and sort of an associate with Freud. Freud met him as a young man, let him... Uh, work in his therapy clinic, but eventually even Freud thought he was a little, you know, off the deep end, which was interesting. He was also a Marxist, um, so he melded Marx's critique of traditional morality as class oppression. All morality is for, Marx said, was to keep the bourgeoisie in power, and the primary instrument of the bourgeoisie for doing that was, of course, the church. Reich borrowed that idea, um, but he mixed it with Freud's emphasis on sexual fulfillment as the highest good of human happiness. That wasn't true for Marx. It was just material well-being is, was pretty much Marx's idea. Uh, and that history would move through this clash of uh, one economic class with another class and so on and so forth until we reached the worker's paradise when everybody would just be happy and free and frolic in the meadow. I'm not making that up. Well, I'm exaggerating slightly, but, but Marx actually did believe in a future utopia because despite the fact that he really shouldn't be that, he was a teleolo- teleologist about nature he believed, uh, and history. He believed that nature had a, and history had a built-in purpose, that history was moving towards the worker's paradise. And this was inevitable. Um, so Reich took that idea and said, basically, the, the so-called worker's paradise is actually just the sexual libertine paradise, that, in fact, a free-for-all orgy is what we're headed for. Um, and of course, he had a lot of other ideas that were even stranger than that. I'm, I'm not kidding. He's, he's an interesting read. So 
sexual fulfillment is the highest good of human happiness. If you're not having plenty of sex, then you can't possibly be happy. Uh, Reich is the one who coined the term sexual revolution to emphasize that political liberation equals sexual liberation. So that's, that's when it started becoming really political. Now, he said this in the 1930s. Now, he... He did. He published a lot of interesting literature. Uh, he was eventually arrested for fraud because he. I I can't remember if this is in the book or not. Um. Perhaps not. Uh, he he designed and manufactured a device called uh, uh, an organon, which was basically a box. Seriously, basically a box about that could be different sizes, but imagine the size of a telephone booth with a door and and it it was metal lined it was kind of like a faraday cage a Faraday cage is a cage you can go in and it keeps out all electronic signals it just you can go in there with a phone and nobody can reach you not even not even the n s a and it was multiple layers, and supposedly, if you sat in there, you would accumulate organ energy, which was kind of like equivalent to Freud's uh, idea of, of libido, only a little bit more mystified. And so um, he got um, arrested for fraud for that. Uh, he still kept doing it. He got put in prison, and then he died about... I think a year after he got let out of prison, or maybe he died in prison. But anyway, he he wrote Sexual Revolution. It's the title of a book in the 1930s. And the Sexual Revolution didn't really get started until, say, the 60s. So he was, he was the prophet of the Sexual Revolution, the politicizing of sex. Um, see. Oh, I already mentioned this, but I'll mention it again because there it is in the notes. Unlike Freud, who believed that the dark inner world of violent sexual desire must be controlled to ensure the security of civilization, Reich believed in the attainment of a sexual utopia through the dismantling of the sexual codes on which the bourgeois family is built. It's very interesting that that now, there are some utopian thinkers. Uh, in, in this state, um, the Shakers were an attempt at a utopian community, and there were other uh, pseudo-Christian and Christian attempts at utopia. But a lot of them uh, that might have been godless um, just sort of believe that all you have to do is dismantle uh, the structures of the existing society, and somehow utopia will spring up you know, just out of the ground from nothing. Uh, so destroy everything that keeps us oppressed, and then voila, we have utopia. Not quite that simple, but uh, Wright believed that dismantling the sexual codes on which the bourgeois family, this is the patriarchal family, so we have to dismantle the patriarchy. We have to destroy the patriarchy. And actually now destroy the gender binary. Um, the idea that there's even two sexes, um, because there's a whole spectrum of sexes. Heinz, 57 varieties. Isn't that how many is on, you can choose on Facebook? 
He thus makes sex a pressing political issue and places the modern notion of the self, that of the psychologized individual, the expressive individual, at the center of the political struggle, as well as victimhood, by the way, victimhood uh, of oppressed sexual minorities as well as oppressed ethnic minorities. Um, so implications of, for contemporary society and politics. Now, this isn't the only one. Uh, if you don't know the guy, this is Jack Phillips. This is the guy who got sued in Colorado. He's a Christian uh, masterpiece bakers. Anyway, so uh, two guys walked. Now, he'd sell to anybody. I mean, he didn't discriminate against people who claimed to have a separate sex sexual orientation, but what he wouldn't do is make cakes that celebrate things that were contrary to his Christian convic- convictions, so, so he, th- he was set up. They intentionally did this, and then they proved it by intentionally doing it again. So two gay guys that wanted to get married wanted him to make a cake. He refused. They got sued. The Colorado, he got sued. Colorado Civil Rights Commission that's sort of Orwellian, found him, come on in, Johnny. <laughs> what? We're, we're casual in here. Um, um, found him guilty, fined him, et cetera. This case went all the way to the Supreme Court. He was finally exonerated. Um, uh, they were right. It was not about the cake. It's, mason, it's making uh, Christians bend to this whole ideology. It isn't about the cake. So you think, well, after that, they just leave him alone. No, they didn't. So two transgender guys walk in, no, walk into a, walk into a bakery. It sounds like a joke, but it isn't. He would not, um, he would not make a cake celebrating, I, I don't know if it was a surgery or whatever, or gay pride parade, or, and he got sued. He's, this, is, this is still now in litigation. So they just want him to be destroyed because he's a roadblock in the way to the sexual utopia, I guess. So it used to be a call for tolerance. I can remember, and I was reminded because I read about it, when, when homosexuals just wanted to be tolerated and people were saying, well, they, they don't want to get married except, oh, no, we don't want to do that. Well, yes, they did want to do that. And, oh, but what was it... Uh, well, it's the Obergefell decision, Obergefell versus who, which legitimized, oh, it's such a bizarre decision. Um, that's the one where I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Anthony Kennedy. Basically gave this really new age mystical view of, and of, of, you're allowed to basically have your own view of reality and this is what America is all about. And it was truly uh, demonstrative of how much expressive individualism has penetrated even into the Supreme Court. So the call for tolerance, in other words, you know, don't persecute us, don't throw us in jail, of sexual minorities has morphed into a demand for recognition. And again, this is, Truman isn't, defining this in a way he wants to to make his point. This is truly what recognition has become. Uh, This recognition of, 
for example, gay or transgender identities means that society does not merely allow such an identity, like, okay, do that, don't bother anybody, do it in the privacy of your own home, whatever, uh, but, but actively affirms, supports, and encourages it. And if you don't do it, if you don't actively affirm, support, and encourage it, you, you will be persecuted and, in some cases, prosecuted. Um, just I'll tell you one difference between the former uh, administration and the current was allowing transgender individuals openly in the military. Now they are allowed, whereas before they were not. Anyway, and it, if you don't actually actively affirm, support, and encourage this, there will be sanctions or punishments against you. Um, that's a summary with a little bit extra thrown in of Truman's chapter. Does anybody have any questions before we go to the actual discussion questions about the content of... Defining happiness, because you know, and that, and that was kind of an interesting. Did you could you elaborate any more on on his? Or on what happiness? Views? Well, yeah. I I would only say that I kind of agree with Aristotle that uh, virtue is happiness. That okay. living a virtuous and a good life is happiness. For a Christian, of course, that would mean glorifying God. Uh, happiness is well. I'm being a little cynical, but it's hit and miss in this world anyway. That's one thing that all these people just don't go along with is that they don't accept that we live in a fallen world and that full and final happiness is simply not going to be possible. You know, life is a trade-off in a fallen world. So defining happiness, by the way, is a, is a, a cottage industry and philosophy. But uh, the starting with the romanticists, they didn't define it as such, but they were really into sex a lot. And then uh, with Freud and Reich, they specifically said happiness is the physical pleasure you derive from sex. Um, utilitarian theory would say it's, it's well, hedonism in general, but uh, w- would say that happiness is the increase of pleasure and the dis- diminishment of pain. It's, it's an entirely material view. Um, and, you know, I don't believe in seeking out pain, but if you're seeking something higher and, and you must experience pain as a result, then you don't necessarily avoid it. So. I was a psychology major in college, studied a little bit of Freud. I don't remember. Did he have bisexual tendencies or did Who, Freud? Um, no, um, I think Freud, well, Freud was married to one person. Uh, Reich, yeah, he, well, he wasn't bisexual. Neither one of them uh, ever had homosexual relationship. Uh, Reich had lots of affairs. Um, yeah, was married, uh, I think, three times. Um, had kids. Uh, well, Freud had had kids too, one of whom was pretty famous, Anna Freud. Um, 
Freud was the way he was because he was raised in an unobservant secular household. Reich had a traumatic upbringing. He, uh, he saw his mother, have, his mother had an affair with his tutor, uh, with Reich's tutor. Um, he saw him doing it, and of course that had traumatized as a kid. But then he told his father, and of course the tutor got fired, but um, that was then. And so uh, domestic abuse was a kind word for what Reich's father did to his mother. And then finally his mother committed suicide. And I think that's as much explanation for why Reich you know, became the theorist he became as much as theoretical psychology or Marxist economic theory. Um, and that started with happiness. Well, let's 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 go on. You can ask any question you want, um, John. I'll get to you. But let me go ahead and put the actual questions up. Uh, well, the, John, you had a question. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask <clears throat> regarding Rousseau. You know, maybe he was the inception of this. But when did they when did they dispose of? Is this an Enlightenment thing that they disposed of the concept of the fall? I mean, Yes. So obviously didn't even think. As, as it, it, it was an Enlightenment thing. The, r- Romanticism believed in the aims of the Enlightenment, but just by other means. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't believe it would come by means of, of rational, necessarily empirical inquiry. It would come by means of, by intuitive nature. But they, they all believed that in the perfectibility of human Beings, the the well, not everything about the Enlightenment was bad, but let's just say the atheist. Like, I, I'm kind of a theistic existentialist. I'm not going to get into this discussion. I'm just saying there is theistic existentialism, but there's also atheistic existentialism, and that's a problem. So the atheistic uh, aspects of the Enlightenment, which came to predominate, um, basically rejected the fall. Um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein can be read as a send-up of the heroic romanticist genius who forgets the lessons of the fall. At least that's how I interpreted it. Um, and uh, um, so they were sometimes consciously aware that they were rejecting the fall, yes. Uh, uh, especially uh, Mary Shelley's... I mean, it's fascinating because Mary Shelley, the Victor Frankenstein... Frankenstein's not the monster's name. Victor Frankenstein is the not-really-hero of the book, and he just seems like a parody of Shelley, of, of Percy Bysshe Shelley... The book was written by his lover and then later wife, Mary Shelley, and it, it's fascinating. Um, anyway, but... Uh, In the big Truman book, I was kind of shocked at like, how freaky that whole family was. Like, they were messed up. Oh, the, oh, well, William Godwin did not believe... Yeah, he, he believed marriage was a bad idea. So why he was married, I don't know. I, I always... I don't know. He's written a lot of essays, none of which I've read, but he believed in free love and and stuff like that. Yes, they they were freaky. And so the the question, one of the questions I have 
when I'm reading this, because remember, uh, Truman has a narrow focus, which one of the things, even in the longer book, which is, is actually a blessing. And if you've read academic books that don't get focused, uh, you, you know why it's such a blessing. He sticks to his point, and his point is, okay, let's trace the intellectual ideas that led to this. So that's what he does. And he doesn't even trace all of them, and he says himself, this isn't the only explanation for how things got to be, but it is one, it's a necessary one, and he does a good job of it. Um, but I've always wondered, how did these people get to be so influential? Because uh, Truman's right, not, nobody reads him now. Well, that's not true. Um, and one of the, the things is the rejection of, of, of God, uh, literally, by the elites of Western culture. And this became more and more and more developed until now it's dominant. And so where do the elites end up? In the universities and higher education and stuff like that. So through education, they've influenced quite a bit, but it was slow and percolated. Like John Dewey was, was an atheist, and he's one of the most influential Americans there ever was on the educational system in this country. Um, I studied John Dewey when I was in the College of Education. Is it somehow just like a temporal coincidence almost? Like they started to have scientific explanations for why things happened in the world? Like if an earthquake happened, they could start to say, oh, these are tectonic plates that are rubbing together rather than almighty God shaking the earth in anger. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's another. We'd stop me if I'm getting too far. But, like, for example, you take Newtonian physics. Newton, okay, he was sort of non-Trinitarian, but he still believed he was a good Christian. He believed he was thinking God's thoughts after him. Uh, Descartes was, was a good Catholic. Um, Orthodox with respect to most Catholic belief. But, of course, um, they took his system without his God and said, well, we don't need God to explain how this mechanism works. It just works the way it does. Now, if you pay attention to the development of cosmology, <coughs> you see it came full circle. I don't know if anybody believes the Big Bang or not, but, but I do. But the Big Bang has no explanation. You know, in other words, science, it, science actually came to an impasse and nobody's realized it. Um, th now they're just trying to explain the explanations. Because before the Big Bang, there, there, was, there was nothing, well, with respect to the material universe, but also no time or no space. So there's absolutely no explanation for how it came to be. So it's not really ultimate. Um, this gets to be pretty complex, so I'm going to stop myself right there, even if I haven't made myself clear. But the, the science didn't just spring up from the Enlightenment. Medieval science was a lot more advanced. Uh, I forget the name of the book. Um, it's a really good book that, that uh, tracks the development of science through the Middle Ages. But it came to the point where, I mean, we're fallen, uh, we're rebels against God, so people use this, just like sex is misused, to, to try and uh, rebel against God even further. 
So if, if there's some possible explanation for why something happened other than God... Now, the, I'm not saying the church is responsible, but there was a certain naivety about how things happen in the cosmos and stuff like that. And every single reformer and Cardinal Bellarmine, the number one counter-reformer, uh, did not believe um, that the earth revolved around the sun. Um, and they not only didn't believe it, they insisted on it. That Copernicus was a fool and that everybody could see it was the sun that revolved around the earth. Well, they were mistaken, and they made it part of, you know, being a good Christian at the time, just like young earth creationists do now. Um, so that was a mistake. And so Christianity came to be looked at as misguided and naive and backward. And then so when something that was, sci- had, was pseudoscientific but had the veneer of science to it, like Darwinism, you know, people are always shocked when I say, yeah, I, I believe the, the universe is, is 13.8 billion years old and the, the earth is 4.8 billion years old, but Darwin was completely wrong because in principle evolution can't happen the way he describes it and if something is impossible in principle, then it, can't happen no matter how much time you give it. Anyway, please stop me. <laughs> Let's look at these questions. We, we started talking about the fall, uh, and that would be an interesting theological tracing of, of how godlessness advanced, uh, either as a cause or um, in correlation with the advancement of, of these theories and their influence on society. So do you think uh, Dr. Truman's explanation, I'm just going to read them all and you can ask them or discuss them or, or another one. Uh, for how sex became political is convincing, why or why not? That's the same question that I'm going to keep asking. Well, in various forms. While psychologizing identity, sexuality, and Christianity are problems, what place might there be for psychology in the church and Christian life? We haven't really discussed how psychology... It's the therapeutizing, the therapeutic turn in Christianity. Christianity has been turned into just um, a, 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 a therapy for making you feel good about yourself. Um, that's penetrated even evangelical Christianity. Uh, what place might there be for psychology in the church and Christian life? I Just so you know, I think there is one, but whatever you think. What do you think defines morality for most people, specifically Americans today? This is one of uh, Dr. Truman's questions. How do we as individual believers and as a church deal with the cultural demand for recognition of sexual-based identities? So... You know, this is, this is where politics is going to hit the fan with, with Christianity because, you know, it starts with cake makers. And there was another one in uh, Washington State, I think. Baronel Stutzman, I think was her name. Similar case. Um, and then in here, I forget her name, the county clerk who would not sign. Uh, what was her name? Kim um, would not sign uh, marriage certificates for 
same-sex couples. So. And I think there's a young gal. I want to say she's a photographer, and she's trying to push. Yes, I th- I vaguely remember running across an article about that, but I don't I don't know any details about it. Um, my if Roberta was here, she would say I think you might have said it before. They ex- they have re- suggested requested she doesn't do it that you put your pronouns in your emails for the company. You know, I mean they can be whatever pronouns you choose. I want to choose adjectives, actually, like <laughs> your royal highness or exalted leader or something like that. Just, just kidding. Father, thank you for the opportunities you give us in this life to draw closer together to one another and also um, share our fellowship in, in Christ. Um, Thank you for uh, Dr. Carl Truman and his wisdom. Um, Help us to make use of that in the best way we can. Help us all to have a good night and a great rest of the week. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.